Let's open our Bibles this morning to the New Testament book of history, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, that's our text. The topic of those verses, the Jewish ruling council wanted to silence Peter and John, but could not ignore the obviously healed man in their midst. Title of our message, 800-pound gorilla in your midst. You'll get that in a minute and then later today. <laughs> Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole." This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, They could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak no more in this name." So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we receive it today as that, the word of God, inspired, infallible, inerrant, able to divide between our soul and our spirit, to show us things about the universe, about eternity, about our own lives, about so many things, Lord, but especially just to be a mirror in which we see Jesus Christ reflected, that we may become more like him, draw closer to him, 
We pray that as we study and read this morning, Lord, you would fill us with your spirit. We would go forth overflowing in a boldness to minister, a boldness to share, so that our world would be touched, Lord, by the certainty of your resurrection from the dead and soon return to this earth. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. The man who had been healed said nothing but could not be silenced. He was like the proverbial 800-pound gorilla in the room. How many of you are familiar with that expression, the 800-pound gorilla? Okay. The gorilla in the room is used figuratively to represent something obvious that is being ignored because you really can't ignore an 800-pound gorilla. There are a series of TV commercials that feature a talking gorilla. Have you seen those? He warns people that they are not preparing for their financial future and then says something like, but don't listen to me. I'm just the 800-pound gorilla in the room. And that's why all of that is funny. (laughs) And then the midst part, you'll get that later. Gorilla in the midst. Get it? Think Sigourney Weaver. Such was the lame man in their midst. His healing was an undeniable fact. If you are a Christian, your healing is an undeniable fact. You have been made whole by Jesus Christ. You who were once dead in your sins have been made alive and enabled to walk with God. You are always the 800-pound gorilla in a room. Men and women still want to ignore you. It's up to you to be certain that they can't. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your healing declares the wonder of the Lord. And number two, your healing defies the wisdom of the world. First of all, in verses 1 through 14, your healing declares the wonder of the Lord. Something gets lost in translation reading this passage. In verse 9, the New King James Version describes the man as being made well. In verse 12, you read the word saved. Now, the word translated made well and saved, it's the same word in the Greek text. The physical healing of the lame man was a sign that Jesus could heal you spiritually. It is not a cop-out to point out that salvation is the ultimate healing. It doesn't deny that the Lord can heal physically. It puts our focus where it ought to be, on the spiritual rather than on the material. Our understanding of physical healing is already too limited. We think only in terms of illness or injury or something else that could affect our bodies. But there are other things in the material world that are healed by Jesus when you get saved. When I was saved, my marriage was healed. Marriage is more than something spiritual. It involves your contact with the material world. It involves another person and future people and all of your other relationships. Uh, and so there's more than just a, uh, uh, you know, there's more to physical healing than just, uh, you know, being healed of cancer or being a lame man that could leap. Spiritual salvation also affected my physical body when I got saved. I don't think I was healed from anything, but because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, I quit destroying my body with alcohol and drugs. And so it did affect me physically. 
When you get saved, you are as perfectly sound as you need to be in order to declare the wonder of the Lord. I only spent a few minutes on that because a lot of times Christians, you know, when we talk about healing, we immediately go to, well, you know, uh, spiritual salvation is the ultimate physical healing. And it it can sound like a cop-out as if we, we don't know why God doesn't heal more physically. Why, why aren't lame men leaping? I think they are in other parts of the world. There's lots of, you know, I, I think statistically we're, we're right on par with the book of Acts probably. Well, we just don't see and we get discouraged about it. We need to expand our understanding. Uh, spiritual healing is the ultimate healing and there are physical components to it and God still heals physically when he chooses to do so. Uh, and, and so we don't back away from this. We just put it in its proper perspective. Now, Peter declared the wonder of the Lord. Let's pick up the story in verse 1. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. They had healed this lame man. Uh, Then they began preaching to the people about it. And now the authorities come upon them. There were 24 groups of priests who served in the temple on a rotating basis. We have, I think, four usher teams here that serve on a rotating basis. We have several cafe teams and uh, worship teams, and and it's the same thing with the priests. There were too many priests to all serve at the same time, and so they had a rotation. They were the ones who performed the rituals prescribed in the law of Moses. The captain of the temple was the head of a special hand-picked security force that kept order within the temple precincts. The Roman government, which was oppressing the Jews, allowed them to have a measure of autonomy, big word, within the temple precincts, and they had their own police force in that area. This was the force that had arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Sadducees were a sect within Judaism. They were wealthy and influential. They preferred cooperation with Rome and worked to maintain the peace. And likely they did because they, they were living high on the hog, as it were, and, and, and you know, living large, we would say today. Everything was fine as far as they were concerned. And perhaps because they were so wealthy and had everything so easy, the Sadducees were materialists in their philosophy and religion. In their beliefs, they denied the supernatural. They really only recognized the first five books of Moses as official, but even within them, they denied the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels or spirits, certainly not in the resurrection from the dead. Jesus had some talks with them in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. It reveals some of the things they did and didn't believe. And so these were the people that came upon them. The priests would be upset that Peter and John were teaching the people. That was their job. The captain would be upset that a large crowd had gathered. They probably didn't pull a permit. The Sadducees would be upset that the theme of the teaching was something they flatly denied the resurrection from the dead. So if you wanted to be politically incorrect, this, you hit everybody here by this speech on Solomon's porch. All this started with the healing of the lame man at about three o'clock in the afternoon. Now it was evening, and so the two apostles were incarcerated overnight because they were going to convene 
uh, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, to examine them. Their message, however, could not be silenced so easily. In verse 4, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Uh, the indication here is it, because it says, however, it, it could be that as Peter and John were taken into custody, people who had believed then went out and were telling others, and the, the message was just spreading. An evangelistic wildfire was spreading through the city. And it says the number came to be about 5,000. Now, th- that we know 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. Many more have been being saved during the interim time. We don't know how many days or weeks you know, since Pentecost that this event took place. Either the total number of the church was 5,000 men or 5,000 more were added this day. Either way, we're talking about a mega church and God was powerfully at work. Or was he? You see, this was the question that needed to be answered. In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 13 to be exact, the Jews are warned that if someone does a sign or a wonder, they must determine whether or not it points people towards or away from God. If the miracle worker encouraged people to go after other gods, they were to kill him regardless of the genuineness of the miracle. So you could heal a lame man or a a notably lame man could get up leaping, but if your message was pointing people away from the God of the Bible to other gods, they would still stone you because they recognize, you know, the Lord recognized that there are counterfeit miracles and that the devil and his angels have a limited amount of power and those things. And so, you know, miracles, hey, they're great. Signs and wonders, super, but they need to point to something and they need to point you to God, never away from him. And, and that's very, very important. And so the Jewish authorities actually are doing what they are supposed to do. I don't know that they had to arrest Peter and John right then, but it was right for them to convene this hearing and to make sure that people were coming to know God and not being driven away. So in verse 5, and it came to pass on the next day, that their rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. The rulers were representatives of the 24 groups of the priests. So out of those 24 groups, sometimes called courses, C-O-U-R-S-E-S, they would pick representatives. Then the elders, these were representatives of the 12 tribes, The scribes were authorized teachers of the law of Moses. Many of them belonged to the sect of Jews known as the Pharisees. Pharisees hassled Jesus before his crucifixion. We'll find in the book of Acts, Sadducees hassled the church after the resurrection. And so we, you know, it's kind of an equal opportunity persecution going on. Pharisees didn't like Sadducees and vice versa. Pharisees believed in angel spirits and the resurrection. So they had this infighting. They'd often join together to come against the church. But the Sadducees are the ones that really attack the church. Now, when it mentions rulers, elders, and scribes, it's letting us know that this is an official meeting of the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. It consisted of 70 men representing those three groups, and then it would be presided over by the high priest for a total of 71 if they were all present. Annas was really the former high priest. 
He had been removed by Rome, but had been succeeded by five of his own sons and by his son-in-law, Caiaphas. John and Alexander, who probably wish they weren't mentioned in the Bible, and the rest of the high priest family were there. I mean, how'd you like to get a mention like this? You're part of this motley group of people that comes against the church. There would additionally be many bystanders. Uh, they would typically have students and citizens. I mean, so this is a, a very, if I can use the word correctly, austere, authoritative group of people in their robes, you know, very kind of like going into a courtroom. This was a legal hearing and then an audience. And, 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 and I think you're being told all this because Luke wants you, Luke, the writer of Acts, wants you to understand there is an intimidation factor at work as a tactic to try to silence Peter and John. If you, if you've, anybody that has a job probably has had their employer try to intimidate them at one time. Uh, These are tactics and things that people use uh, to try and get you to go along with their plan and their program. And and sometimes they, they're pretty powerful tactics uh, and you, you can go to seminars and learn these tactics, as a matter of fact. When I was a salesman, uh, they used to try and teach us how to gently intimidate our clientele. And I love, actually, I love talking to salesmen now. And, and one of the intimidation tactics salesmen use, I'll reveal to you secrets of the salesman right here, <laughs> is they, a, a, you get to a point where they act like you've hurt their feelings somehow or lied to them. And, and, and it's pretty effective because you, you, especially as a Christian, you want to be a nice person. And, and, but you really know you're getting to them because that's a pretty advanced technique. When, when the salesman starts to accuse you of doing something wrong, you're under his or her skin. And just get a big smile on your face. Uh, because, you know, and I've had that. We've been going through a thing for a year and a half with our copier. And one of these days, I, if it wasn't, you know, Sunday, I'd take the whole morning and explain it to you. would have you in stitches. But I'm, I'm on my fourth salesman now, and uh, it's just insane, you know, the things that, that happen. I think I, one guy had to retire because of me. But anyway, <laughs> he sold his company, and now somebody else is running it. But anyway, so they're trying to intimidate these untrained, uneducated fishermen. Some of them in this crowd may have even remembered Peter as the guy who wimped out around the fire the morning Jesus was being uh, interrogated. A little slave girl pushed Peter over the edge. I don't know him. And he, with many curses, you know, declared that he didn't even know who Jesus was. And so they had a pretty good strategy here to intimidate these guys. After all, how could these two simple fishermen argue against such a group of men? Well, they were about to find out. In verse 7, and when they had set them in their midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Uh, Gamaliel, do you think these guys are intimidated? Uh, No, I don't think so. (laughs) This is powerful. Underline the words filled with the Holy Spirit. 
His powerful presence upon and now overflowing from these apostles made this an absolutely unfair fight. It's like coming to a gunfight with a knife. Uh, It's just wrong. Peter boldly declared that it was in the name of Jesus of Nazareth that the man was healed. Then he went further than they asked and said, by the way, you killed him. And then he did not hesitate to declare that God had raised him from the dead. So much for intimidation. However, boldness was not enough. Peter still needed to prove that his teaching was scriptural. It's one thing to be bold. It's another thing to be biblical. And so in verse 11, Peter goes on and he says, this... This healing, this, this preaching, everything that they were accusing them of, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Peter quoted clearly from Psalm 118, verse 22. All Jews agreed that that spoke of their Messiah. Now, the Sadducees interpreted the stone of that passage to refer to the nation of Israel as a whole. To them, Messiah is a synonym for the nation. It's not a person. Their view was that the Gentile nations were builders who were persecuting Israel. But one day God would change all that by setting up Israel as the chief among the nations, Israel the chief cornerstone. Peter told them that the Messiah of Psalm 118 was a person. He told them it was Jesus Christ. He said to them, you are the builders. You rejected Jesus' offer to establish the kingdom by having him crucified. But now he's risen from the dead and is proving he has risen and has authority in heaven by healing this lame man. And so Peter said, this is scriptural. Here's the verse, and this is what it really means, and this is how it is pointing people to the God of the Bible. These guys had to be mind blown. When you put all of your energy and effort into intimidating people, I don't think they had a, 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 a backup plan. They had, because they have to, in a minute, we'll see that they dismiss them and try and come up with plan B. They thought that they had these guys, and now they're blown away. And while he still has their attention, and Peter can see the expression on their faces of alarm and the whiteness as the blood is... He says to them in verse 12, By the way, there isn't salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And he brought it to bear on them personally. Not only have you killed the Messiah, we dealt with a lot of this in previous studies, but you can only be saved if you believe what I'm telling you. Yes, a lame man was healed, but an even greater healing was necessary. All men must be saved, and it's only through Jesus Christ that that can happen. They could not refute this argument. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Step away from the story for a moment and think of yourself. You can be with Jesus. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. He loves to hang out with you, we would say. You don't need any formal education or training. 
We're not against it. It can be valuable, but you don't need it to give your testimony. You can be filled with his Holy Spirit and have all the boldness you need when you need it. You have been healed, always to an extent physically, but certainly spiritually. Why then are you not in more trouble with unbelievers? It's an interesting question. Well, there are as many answers to that question as there are believers. One that I would suggest today is that we are allowing unbelievers to ignore our healing. And there are at least two ways I can think of we might be doing this. One way is to downplay our healing in order to fit in with unbelievers and not upset things at work or at school or in the neighborhood. After all, and I mean this with all sincerity, we don't want to lose our jobs. We don't want to be ostracized. You know, we don't want to bring persecution. But a lot of times, and maybe I can look at this a different way, a lot of times people will call me or come to me and they, they say, oh man, you know, today at work, this happened. I feel like I'm being singled out as a Christian and, and being persecuted at work. I, I'll tell you right now, if, whenever you call and tell me that, I go into a Holy Ghost revival. I think that's the greatest thing that can happen to you. Notwithstanding, I don't want you to lose your job and be destitute, you know, and have to go on the hobo circuit or something like that, but... <laughs> But I mean, this is what would be expected. This is exactly, I mean, next time we're together, we'll see that the apostles were excited about this kind of thing. Hey, somebody realized I'm a Christian and they're, they're nailing me for it. Sure, I, I, I don't want to lose my job, but what a joy to know that Jesus Christ is being revealed in me. And so sometimes I think we, we kind of downplay our Christianity. Another way is, unfortunately, some Christians live as though Jesus doesn't make any difference in their lives. Their marriage, their parenting, their ethics are no different than those of the unbelievers all around them. And so there's no, they can't really see that there's been a spiritual healing in our lives because our lives are no different than anyone else's life. Now here's another thought. The Sanhedrin looked upon Peter and John and the words of the Bible say they realized they had been with Jesus. That is an incorrect assessment. When you look at Peter and John and say these guys had been with Jesus, they were thinking in the past tense as if Jesus were dead. They should have said these guys are with Jesus or better, Jesus is with these guys right now in the present tense. And as a devotional thought, occasionally our walk with the Lord, I use myself as an example, my walk with the Lord can be a little bit past tense. If I'm not really spending time with the Lord, walking with the Lord, reading his word, enjoying the joy of my salvation, all of those kind of basic things that a Christian does, my relationship gets a little old and stale. And, and it, it, you know, from a spiritual perspective, at least people look and they could say, Gene had been with Jesus, but there's no freshness to it. I want people to say, Jesus is with Gene. And so this is another thing that we want to remember. If we want to be used more, we, that's not the place to start. The place to start is just to love the Lord more and to be falling in love with him over and over and over and over again. Whatever the reason, we must understand a Christian is the 800-pound gorilla in any room. Your healing is a wonder that can introduce unbelievers to Jesus Christ, which is the name given among men 
by which they must be saved. In verses 15 through 22, your healing defies the wisdom of the world. The Sanhedrin had created an even bigger problem for themselves. Verse 15, but when they commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. This is actually a very important verse, or or it reveals a very important concept that we sometimes overlook. Opposition to biblical Christianity is always in spite of conclusive evidence and proof that it is true. The world intimidates us as Christians with their theories of evolution and their hot big words that they spin out. And, and you know, you watch these specials on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel, and these guys with 10 PhDs after their name and this smug look on their face start telling you why the Bible can't be true. And it's an intimidation technique that the world uses. You need to realize there is no scientific discovery that contradicts the Bible. There's nothing in history that contradicts the Bible. The truth is men refuse to believe the Bible in spite of conclusive evidence in many cases that it's true. Scientists, atheists, want you to believe that it's either faith or facts. And they're on the side of Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. And if you want to be a believer in the Bible... You have to like be in some ethereal world of faith where nothing has to make any sense at all. And that, you know, that's a pretty good propaganda campaign and we fall for it all the time and we're intimidated by intelligent people who are really very stupid. I mean that in all sincerity. Intelligent people who don't know the Lord are very stupid because they're gonna die and face a Christless eternity. It's not a matter of intellect, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the sin nature of man. And and, uh, I'm thankful, I mean, you know, you can, there are scientists who are Christians. (laughs) A lot of people don't know this. That's one of them now. Henry Morris calling, but anyway. uh, You know, and so opposition to your Christianity is always in spite of conclusive evidence to the contrary, that Jesus is risen from the dead and going to return. So in verse 17, so that it spread no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin had failed to intimidate Peter and John, so they tried to intimidate them more. It, too, was doomed to fail. They did not understand who or what they were dealing with. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. Interesting what's happening here too. When Peter uses the words, you judge, I believe he's turning the tables on the Sanhedrin. Here's what's happening. Notable miracle, 
We need to determine, guys, if this is pointing men to or away from God. And so let's arrest these two uneducated fishermen and intimidate them. Boy, that didn't work. Uh, Let's threaten them. And then Peter says, hey, what's wrong with you guys? We are pointing people to God. If you do this, you are pointing people away from God. But there's only two of us, and we're not going to stone you. You see, I mean, they were guilty. They were the ones who were violating Deuteronomy 13. They had judged themselves. Ooh. You know, people talk about Peter, you know, before he was, you know, a Christian, before he was born again and before he had the Holy Spirit in him, how he wasn't quite as bold. Then they say, man, look at the boldness of Peter. I don't think we understand the bold boldness of Peter. I mean, Peter, this is everybody that could come against you. This is the Congress and the Senate and the President of the United States, and the IRS. (laughs) And Walmart, maybe even. I don't know. (laughs) This is everybody that could come against you all at once with the power of life or death. And you look them, you stare them down, and you say, We're right, you're wrong, Jesus is the Messiah, you killed him, he's risen from the dead, he's coming back, you're the ones that need to be stoned. Wow, (laughs) okay. (laughs) You got to know that you're not going to threaten a guy like that. Uh, And yet they try. It was they who should be stoned according to their own law. So in verse 21, they further threaten them. They let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. Now, these guys seem dumb. Why keep using the same tactic? Well, I'll tell you why. Because unbelievers live in a totally material world. They only have the material weaponry in their arsenal. They can only hurt you physically. They can make your daily life difficult. They can fire you. They can falsely accuse you. They can ridicule you. They might even imprison you or physically harm you. And those are real things that that really happen to Christians even in America. Stand against them on spiritual ground and you will always be victorious. You will suffer for it in this life. You might lose your job, get kicked out of your neighborhood or driven out. There are a lot of things that could happen to you but you will be thankful and rewarded in the next. Verse 22, for the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Again, you're struck by the fact that this healed man said nothing throughout these proceedings. Now, he wasn't asked anything, and it wasn't cowardice on his part. He stood with them, stood with the accused, which is a big thing to do. And he was willing to testify and offering himself as proof. It's just that he didn't need to say anything. They'd be looking at Peter and John, and then they'd drift over, and here was the lame man who who all of them knew and recognized. Many of them had probably given him alms. They probably stood in the temple and prayed as they sometimes are described as doing in the New Testament, saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not as other sinners, but I give alms to the poor and to the lame. And now he's over there. And I have a theory, this is my own personal theory as I try and kind of chart this out in my mind, what this scene might have looked like. 
I have a theory that the lame man was moving around quite a bit. I think he enjoyed walking. Over 40 years old, never had walked, never crawled, never walked, didn't learn how to do that. Just all of a sudden, one day, a fisherman took him by the hand and he was leaping like a deer. And I have a feeling that every time somebody looked at him, he did a little shuffle. (laughs) Kind of a little aerobic thing. Maybe every now and then a little hop, you know, just to verify, hey, if you guys aren't going to talk to me, I'm going to show you that I'm healed. Kind of a little running in place thing, you know. That kind, I, I mean, I'm serious. You have to understand, we always see these things in a kind of a way. I mean, this is real life. This is what, and that's what I would have been doing if I was this guy. And that's what a lot of you would have been doing. Probably excusing himself every few minutes to run over and get a drink and run back. You know, I mean, this is great. They gave him the nickname Dash, probably. I don't know, but... <laughs> By the way, I've mentioned before that both Jesus and his disciples, prior to Jesus' resurrection, had passed by this man many times without pausing to heal him. Now we see something of the wisdom in that waiting. He was healed by the risen, ascended Christ through a member of his church left on earth as a token, as an example, to signify that that's what the church does to prove that Jesus was risen and ascended with authority and power in heaven to make lame men leap as a token of what the kingdom of God would be like because this was a sign in the book of Isaiah that the kingdom was upon you, that lame men would leap. We talk about God having a perfect timing. A lot of times we make excuses for God. We pray for something, it doesn't happen, and we say, well, God has a, a perfect timing. We're kind of bummed out because it didn't happen. That's our way of saying we wish it happened, but it didn't. But I guess God has a perfect timing, and it's not your time, buddy. God does have a perfect timing. If you're this man, probably right up until the time you're healed, you're thinking, man, I want to be healed, I want to be healed, I want to be healed. And then afterwards, you enter into the perfect timing of God, and you think, what a blast this is to be healed by the risen Christ, to be in... Acts chapter 3 and 4, to be standing here doing my little Holy Ghost shuffle in front of the Sanhedrin, a little spiritual dancing going on there, you know, you know it. And this, this is exciting stuff. It's what the church does. It heals people, sometimes physically in a more dramatic way than just having it touch every aspect of your life but always spiritually. Bible commentator G. Campbell Morgan put it like this, and I quote, The church has no argument unless she has a healed man. And the church that is not healing men, remaking them, has no argument for her Christianity. Peter and John had a healed man. So do we. In fact, you and I are the healed man. Let's go forth leaping and jumping and praising God. Let's pray together.